Welcome to Just Listen, a celebration of literature from Nashville Public Library. For more stories and poetry, visit our website at library.nashville.org. Please feel free to leave a comment or to make requests or recommendations. And now, for today's selection. In Theft, Catherine Ann Porter's widely anthologized short story, the protagonist must grapple with a host of emotions and circumstances. Loneliness, uncertainty, struggle, trust, independence, love, and loss. Finally, she must discover the truth of her own identity in the midst of so many confusing impressions. We begin. She had the purse in her hand when she came in. Standing in the middle of the floor, holding her bathrobe around her and trailing a damp towel in one hand, she surveyed the immediate past and remembered everything clearly. Yes, she had opened the flap and spread it out on the bench after she had dried the purse with her handkerchief. She had intended to take the elevated train, and naturally she looked in her purse to make certain she had the fare and was pleased to find forty cents in the coin envelope. She was going to pay her own fare, too, even if Camillo did have the habit of seeing her up the steps and dropping a nickel in the machine before he gave the turnstile a little push and sent her through it with a bow. Camillo, by a series of compromises, had managed to make effective a fairly complete set of the smaller courtesies, ignoring the larger and more troublesome ones. She had walked with him to the station in a pouring rain because she knew he was almost as poor as she was, and when he insisted on a taxi, she was firm and said, "'You know it simply will not do.' He was wearing a new hat of a pretty biscuit shade, for it had never occurred to him to buy anything of a practical color. He had put it on for the first time, and the rain was spoiling it. She kept thinking, "'But this is dreadful. Where will he get another?' and compared it with Eddie's hats that always seemed to be precisely seven years old and as if they had been quite purposely left out in the rain, and they sat with a careless and incidental rightness on Eddie. But Camilo was far different. If he wore a shabby hat, it would merely be shabby on him, and he would lose his spirits over it. If she had not feared Camilla would take it badly, for he insisted on the practice of his little ceremonies up to the point he had fixed for them, she would have said to him as they left Thora's house, "'Do go home. I can surely reach the station by myself.' "'It is written that we must be rained upon tonight,' said Camillo, "'so let it be together.' At the foot of the platform stairway she staggered slightly. They were both nicely set up on Thora's cocktails, and said— at least, Camillo, do me the favor not to climb these stairs in your present state, since for you it is only a matter of coming down again at once, and you'll certainly break your neck. He made three quick bows, he was Spanish, and leaped off through the rainy darkness. She stood watching him, for he was a very graceful young man, thinking that tomorrow morning he would gaze soberly at his spoiled hat and soggy shoes and possibly associate her with his misery. And as she watched... He stopped at the far corner and took off his hat and hid it under his overcoat. She felt she had betrayed him by seeing, because he would have been humiliated if he thought she even suspected him of trying to save his hat. Roger's voice sounded over her shoulder above the clang of the rain falling on the stairway shed, wanting to know what she was doing out in the rain at this time of night, and did she think herself a duck? 
His long, imperturbable face was streaming with water, and he tapped a bulging spot on the breast of his buttoned-up overcoat. Hat, he said. Come on, let's take a taxi. She settled back against Roger's arm, which he had laid around her shoulders, and with the gesture they exchanged a glance full of long, amiable associations. Then she looked through the window at the rain, changing the shapes of everything, and the colors. The taxi dodged in and out between the pillars of the elevated, skidding slightly on every curve, and she said, The more it skids, the calmer I feel, so I really must be drunk. You must be, said Roger. This bird is a homicidal maniac, and I could do with a cocktail myself this minute. They waited on the traffic at 40th Street and 6th Avenue, and three boys walked before the nose of the taxi. Under the globes of light, they were cheerful scarecrows, all very thin and wearing very seedy, snappy-cut suits and gay neckties. They were not very sober either, and they stood for a moment wobbling in front of the car, and there was an argument going on among them. They leaned toward each other as if they were getting ready to sing, and the first one said, "'When I get married, it won't be just for getting married. I'm going to marry for love, see?' And the second one said, "'Ah, go on and tell that stuff to her, why not you?' And the third one gave a kind of hoot and said, "'Hell, this guy, what the hell's he got?' And the first one said, "'Ah, shut up, you mush, I got plenty.' Then they all squealed and scrambled across the street, beating the third one on the back and pushing him around. Nuts, commented Roger. Pure nuts. Two girls went skittering by in short, transparent raincoats, one green, one red, their heads tucked against the drive of the rain. One of them was saying to the other, Yes, I know all about that, but what about me? You're always so sorry for him and they ran on with their little pelican legs flashing back and forth. The taxi backed up suddenly and leaped forward again, and after a while Roger said, I had a letter from Stella today, and she'll be home on the 26th, so I suppose she's made up her mind and it's all settled. I had a sort of letter today too, she said. I think it's time for you and Stella to do something definite. When the taxi stopped on the corner of West 53rd Street, Roger said, I've just enough if you'll add ten cents. So she opened her purse and gave him a dime, and he said, That's beautiful, that purse. It's a birthday present, she told him, and I like it. How's your show coming? Oh, still hanging on, I guess. I don't go near the place. Nothing sold yet. I mean to keep right on the way I'm going, and they can take it or leave it. I'm through with the argument. It's absolutely a matter of holding out, isn't it? Holding out's the tough part. Good night, Roger. Good night. You should take aspirin and push yourself into a tub of hot water. You look as though you're catching cold. I will. With the purse under her arm, she went upstairs, and on the first landing, Bill heard her step and poked his head out with his hair tumbled and his eyes red, and he said, For Christ's sake, come in and have a drink with me. I've had some bad news. "'You're perfectly sopping,' said Bill. "'They had two drinks, and Bill told how the director had thrown his play out "'after the cast had been picked over twice and had gone through three rehearsals. "'I said to him, "'I didn't say it was a masterpiece. I said it was a good show.' "'And he said, "'It just doesn't play, do you see? It needs a doctor.' "'So I'm stuck, absolutely stuck,' said Bill, on the edge of weeping again. "'I've been crying,' he told her, "'in my cups.' 
and he went on to ask her if she realized that his wife was ruining him with her extravagance. I send her ten dollars every week of my unhappy life, and I don't really have to. She threatens to jail me if I don't, but she can't do it. God, let her try it after the way she treated me. She's no right to alimony, and she knows it. But I send it because I can't bear to see anybody suffer, and I'm way behind on the piano and the Victrola both. Well, this is a pretty rug, anyhow, she said. Bill stared at it and blew his nose. I got it at Ricci's for ninety-five dollars, he said. Ricci said it once belonged to Marie Dressler and cost fifteen hundred dollars, but there's a burnt place on it. Can you beat that? No, she said. They had another drink, and she went to her apartment on the floor above, and there, she now remembered distinctly, she had taken the letter out of her purse before she spread the purse out to dry. She had sat down and read the letter over again, but there were phrases that insisted on being read many times. They had a life of their own, separate from the others, and when she tried to read past and around them, they moved with the movement of her eyes, and she could not escape them. Thinking about you more than I mean to. Yes, I even talk about you. Why were you so anxious to destroy? Even if I could see you now, I would not. Not worth all this abominable. The end. Carefully, she tore the letter into narrow strips and touched a lighted match to them in the coal grate. Early the next morning, she was in the bathtub when the janitress knocked and then came in, calling out that she wished to examine the radiators before she started the furnace going for the winter. After moving about the room for a few minutes, the janitress went out closing the door very sharply. She came out of the bathroom to get a cigarette from the package in the purse. The purse was gone. She dressed and made coffee and sat by the window while she drank it. Certainly the janitress had taken the purse, and certainly it would be impossible to get it back without a great deal of ridiculous excitement. Then let it go. With this decision of her mind, there rose coincidentally in her blood a deep, almost murderous anger. She set the cup carefully in the center of the table and walked unsteadily downstairs, three long flights and a short hall and a steep short flight into the basement, where the janitress, her face streaked with coal dust, was shaking up the furnace. "'Will you please give me back my purse? There isn't any money in it. It was a present, and I don't want to lose it.' The janitress turned without straightening up and peered at her with hot, flickering eyes, a red light reflected from the furnace in them. "'What do you mean, your purse?' The gold cloth purse you took from the wooden bench in my room, she said. I must have it back. Before God, I never laid eyes on your purse, and that's the holy truth, said the janitress. Oh, well, then, keep it, she said in a very bitter voice. Keep it if you want it so much. And she walked away. She remembered how she had never locked a door in her life, on some principle of rejection in her that made her uncomfortable in the ownership of things, and her paradoxical boast before the warnings of her friends that she had never lost a penny by theft. And she had been pleased with the bleak humility of this concrete example, designed to illustrate and justify a certain fixed, otherwise baseless and general faith which ordered the movements of her life without regard to her will in the matter." In this moment she felt that she had been robbed of an enormous number of valuable things, whether material or intangible, things lost or broken by her own fault, 
things she had forgotten and left in houses when she moved, books borrowed and not returned, journeys she had planned and had not taken, words she had waited to hear spoken to her and had not heard, and the words she had meant to answer with bitter alternatives and intolerable substitutes worse than nothing, and yet inescapable. The long patient suffering of dying friendships and the dark inexplicable death of love, all that she had had, and all that she had missed, were lost together, and were twice lost in this landslide of remembered losses. The janitress was following her upstairs with her purse in hand and the same deep red fire flickering in her eyes. The janitress thrust the purse towards her while they were still a half-dozen steps apart and said, Don't never tell on me. I must have been crazy. I get crazy in the head sometimes. I swear I do. My son can tell you. She took the purse after a moment and the janitress went on. I got a niece who is going on 17, and she's a nice girl, and I thought I'd give it to her. She needs a pretty purse. I must have been crazy. I thought maybe you wouldn't mind. You leave things around and don't seem to notice much. She said, I missed this because it was a present to me from someone. The janitress said, He'd get you another if you lost this one. My niece is young and needs pretty things. We ought to give the young ones a chance. She's got young men after her. Maybe we'll want to marry her. She ought to have nice things. She needs them bad right now. You're a grown woman. You've had your chance. You ought to know how it is. She held the purse out to the janitress, saying, You don't know what you're talking about. Here, take it. I've changed my mind. I really don't want it. The janitress looked up at her with hatred and said, I don't want it either now. My niece is young and pretty. She don't need fixing up to be pretty. She's young and pretty anyhow. I guess you need it worse than she does. It wasn't really yours in the first place, she said, turning away. You mustn't talk as if I had stolen it from you. It's not from me. It's from her you're stealing it, said the janitress, and went back downstairs. She laid the purse on the table and sat down with the cup of chilled coffee and thought. I was right not to be afraid of any thief but myself, who will end by leaving me nothing. Thanks for joining us. Tune in to another session of Just Listen by visiting your Nashville Public Library website at library.nashville.org.